0: Uh, thank you so much, Jan and Company. I love hearing you guys sing and carry me on your uh, praises, if you will. Um, really encouraged by being here with you all this morning. You found us in part four of a seven part series we 're calling Engendered Species," and the subtitle kind of tells the why of why we 're even here, rediscovering the beauty of god 's design wanting to speak on the issue of what does it mean to be a man what does it mean to be a woman and why would God design us this way in the first place so i want to go forward before i go backwards often when i begin i talk about where we've been this morning i want to tell you where we're going next week if you're able to be here i'm going to try to solve one of the biggest mysteries in the universe okay we're going to try to define what is a woman we're, that's going to be fun. Now, it's possible I'll be sick next week and Kevin will have to speak in my stead. Uh, just, that's a possibility, all right? I'm just kind of putting that out there right now. But we're looking forward to that, um, just like we look forward to, to last time we were together, and defining what is a man, all right, and what happens with that. Uh, someone thought maybe the snow was kind of God giving me an extra week to prep for, you know, what, it, what to do. Anyway, we're going to be fine. It's, I, I hope it will be good and helpful for you. What is a woman and talk about that? Again, I just promised to deliver a definition you get to figure out whether it's right, wrong, incomplete, whatever, and you can fight with that with me, hopefully in a kind and helpful way, all right? So we're going to go there next time, and then the following week, we're going to talk about the roles that women play, if that's what a woman is, all right? What does it mean to be successful in that role? Why would God design me or create me to be a woman, all right? What does that look like? And then finally, we're going to get after some practical questions for you at the very end of this series. Um, People have asked me along the way, there have been a few of you who have just touched base with me individually, you've emailed me, you've Facebook messaged me, you've texted me, you've called me, or you've met me in the halls here, and you kind of said, hey listen, I, my kid is going to school with um, a, a, a kid who is transgender, and I'm trying to figure out how to help him relate. To this kid, or is it okay if I go to a wedding as a Christian of a homosexual couple? Is that an okay thing for me to do, or is that bad? To do? You know, what, what should, how should I interact with that? How should I respond to that? Um, my another person has said, um, you know, should I send my child to a home where there's homosexual parents um, who have a child? Is that okay to send them overnight? I mean, what, what should I do with that as a, as a parent? as a Christian, you know. What, you know, how do I navigate this world in which I'm in? Those are all fair questions. If you have particular questions like that that you're just itching for me to answer or to address or deal with, let me know, okay? Because I'd be glad to talk about some of that. We're going to try to, on the last Sunday here, draw out some big principles that I think can apply to a lot of specific situations. But I'd be glad to hear your questions in particular as we continue to march forward in this series, all right? So, this is where we've been. Uh, we've been in week one. We asked this question Is there a moral authority on this issue? Or is it just a matter of who has the most persuasive argument? And I tried to lay out then that if you were around at the beginning of time and created what we know, and if you were created humanity, you kind of have a right to create the way you want. So, from my worldview, biblical worldview, I'm just cards on the table. I'm coming down saying I believe in the authority of the scriptures in, in, in the Bible. I believe in the, the power of the Bible. And I believe that it can speak and has a moral pull on us. It has moral authority over us. And so I'm going to go back and say in the beginning God created. And if that's true, if God created in the beginning before anything else existed, then he has a right to create the way he wants to. So my moral authority on this issue is not the most persuasive argument. My moral authority isn't even science or even a study of genetics. That's not my moral authority. It goes back to, in the beginning, God created. That's where I come down on this. The second week we asked this question, essentially, or tried to deal with the issue of the image of God, that we said that humanity has, has value because of God's image, that when God placed his image on men and women, he inherently gave them value, and that gender equality... Is about understanding that both genders are equal in the sight of God, equal in value, equal in honor, equal in distinction, that we should honor and respect with great value both men and women. That is what we call gender equality. That trying to strip away the distinctions between men and women actually doesn't make us better. It makes us less than what we're created for. Okay, so we also said this, that God's image includes gender distinction. That he was the one who came up with the idea, let me make male and let me make female. That's part of the image issue that God has created. So I can fight with that if I want to, but that is just what the Bible teaches us. That God created male and female in his image, he created them. So again, if that all is true, we ask the question then, what does it mean to be a man, first of all? And we're going to ask, what does it mean to be a woman? So if that's true, that God decided somewhere, here's a good idea. I'm going to make a biological male. This is a good, good way to start things. And then I'm going to make a biological female. Here's another good idea. Now that's true, and you're a biological male, and you're a man, How do I carry that out? If God had a design or an intent for me, what does it mean for me to fill that out and to be a successful man? And who do I even listen to 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 give definition to how I function in this world? So here's my definition of manhood that we went to two weeks ago when we were here before we were all shoveling snow like crazy last Sunday. Here's what we said. That a man is a biologically born male who grows into his role of headship by using his strength to serve those around him through ordering the world for their benefit. Kind of a mouthful. That's taken from the book of Genesis, where God places Adam in the garden to work and take care of it. This is his commission. To work, we talked about that, meaning the idea of serve. That's the point of it. To work not just for your own sake, but when we work for our own sake, it's a perversion of how God has commissioned us. And then to order or take care of the world around him. That men are to use their strength to order the world for the benefit of other people. That's kind of what we're to do. Now, here's the the challenge. We live in a world now, and what I want to speak to this morning is what does this look like? Okay? What does it actually look like? What kind of picture can I get? of how I can, if I'm a man, how can I roll out my existence and make it, make it uh, work, make it right? I want to be successful. I don't know of any man who's like, man, I just want to be a failure. Like, I, just want, I don't want to do well. I want to be passive. I want to be unresponsive. I want people to look at me and be like, man, he's a fool. Like No one says that. We all want to do it right. We all want to be wise. We all want to be respected. But the question is, who are we listening to, right, and what are the challenges along the way to make that, that work? And what can we learn from the scriptures about that? So this morning, I want to talk about some of the challenges and what it would actually look like to play out our role as men in the world. Now, if you're a woman, I'm going to uh, speak to you in a moment because, fear not, there's a real uh, value, I hope, for you for this message. I have no doubt that there will be, but I want to speak to that in a moment. So here's where we're at. Um, the challenge of where we are now as men. We've talked a little bit about what has been deconstructed uh, in terms of what our, how our culture sees men. I want to introduce you to Gary Barker. Um, He's an international director of an organization called Promundo. It engages men and boys around the world in the issues of gender equality. And here's what Barker says. And the reason I tell you this is I just want to frame up the challenges that as men we face, particularly millennial men face and younger, but certainly all of men will face in this culture, um, now related to the issue of being male, being a man. And here's what he says, and this kind of carries much of the the overall um, movement of pop culture now. He says, men um, who have more rigid views, rigid, of what it means to be men, are more likely to have suicidal thoughts, more likely to be depressed, less likely to report that they're happy with life overall, less likely to take care of their health, more likely to own guns. The list goes on, he said. By the way, there's no reference to that. It's simply his opinion. There is something toxic, listen to how he's described this, something toxic about this version of masculinity out there. So detoxing society requires ripping off a mask of sorts. It's about getting as many people as possible to have that matrix moment, Barker said, when they realize, wait, masculinity, here's what he says, masculinity isn't real. It's all illusory or an illusion. It's all performance. This is the world that we live in. This is the world that is pushing. Listen, that traditional view of masculinity, do you hold to that? Seriously? If you do, you're more likely to be suicidal. You're more likely to be depressed. You're more likely to own guns. You're more likely to be a loser. I mean, you're more likely to have an unfulfilled life. This is just what's going to happen. Listen, and the, the counsel of our general culture now is, come on, wake up. It's 2016, people. A traditional rigid view of masculinity, it doesn't lead anywhere. You've got to be kidding me. You still hold on to that? That's the world we live in, right? It's a deconstructing world, pulling away things that traditionally men have come to understand as this defines my masculinity. To go further, Ted Porter did a famous TED Talk uh, on manhood. And in there, he talked about if his daughter would cry, he would often go over and as a father sit and console her. But he would say, if my son cried... I would go over to him and say, come on, act like a man. And he said, wait, I don't think that's right. I'd agree with him. I don't think that that's right either. But Porter carries that further. And he pushes that idea out this way, and he says says this, that men are socialized into what we call the man box, which entails the following, little fear, little weakness and emotion, physically strong, heterosexual, confident, wealthy, and dominant. He's saying, in order to be a man in the culture in which we now live, these things have to be true of you. And he's saying, we need to to rip that away and deconstruct that. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but for the first time in U.S. history, in fact, I might even argue in world history, we are adding things to this assumption about manhood. Not only character qualities, but now even biological descriptors. We are adding all of a sudden, as we deconstruct... As we deconstruct, oh, men should be able to cry, men should be able to wear makeup now, men should be able to do whatever, we are now adding to our deconstruction that men no longer have to be heterosexual. Men no longer even have to be biologically male. In fact, you don't even need to call yourself a man if you're biologically male. You can identify however you'd like. And in our process of deconstructing, we are pulling everything apart. And it leaves us in a vast wilderness of what in the world does it actually mean to function like a man? And whether you know it or not, and whether you put it into these words or not, you are growing up, if you're younger, or you are now in, if you're older, a society in which this is the predominant cultural worldview. We need to deconstruct these traditional views of manhood. And come on, wake up, it's 2016. Are you still a little house on the prairie? This is the world in which we live now. What does this mean for us? And how do we respond to this? How should we interact in a world like this? Knowing, and i said this before, knowing that the church has often got it wrong when it comes to how we deal with issues related to homosexuality. We talked about that early on. We don't have a great reputation on this. It's reality. When I go to the scriptures... I'm challenged on this, okay? When I go to the Scriptures, I'm challenged. And I'm challenged to respond to a moral authority of God in a couple of ways. And I want to lay it out this way. And here's what I think is the greatest challenge for men. So if you're a man here this morning, or you're a young man this morning here, and you're beginning to process this, here's what I think happens as men. As men, when an authority comes into our life, we have a chance to respond to that in one way or the other. And as men, our greatest challenge is a challenge to our authority. We will do things if we respect and trust the leader, but it becomes very difficult to do things if we don't. And so when we hear this call of the Scriptures, call of God, from all the way back in Genesis, I mean, that was like a long time ago, like thousands of years ago, and we're 2016 now, right? Like, does this still apply now you know i mean is this really still true about us and and does the bible have a moral authority pull on me not just is it true because i will tell you the issue on the table is not do i believe the bible is true the issue is am i willing to submit to the authority of the bible those are two different issues al Mohler wrote a book called we cannot be silent and in there he said that approximately 80% of people who identify as evangelicals in the united states will indicate that if the bible and their view disagree, they are likely to follow their view. In other words, the moral authority, the moral claim of the Scriptures is not a strong and present reality for most people. In other words, if the Bible disagrees with how I feel I should act out my maleness, it's probably an interpretation issue. I don't know that I can really trust it. I mean, I believe general things about the Bible, but that, the moral authority, the moral pull, I don't know. So when we hear in the Scriptures that men are to use their strength to serve others by ordering the world for their benefit. How do men react to that? And how do we interact with that? And here's our challenge. I want to put it to you this way. I want to introduce my little uh, seesaw here this morning. Isn't that impressive? little triangle with a line. Over time, men have responded to a, a call to manhood in two general ways. One is a move toward passivity. And over time, as... Uh, decisions are made with men to to be passive for one reason or another that scale tends to kind of slide this way and we slide into a life that's a little more passive just to flesh this out some men that you may know if they lean into a life of passivity it is marked by or it is described by a lack of commitment, lack of initiative lack of creativity, lack of courage, lack of drive lack of passion, you fill it out in other words, there are men who are just like, ah, I don't know if I should do that. That's a long-term commitment. They delay getting married. They delay making a long-term commitment to a job. They lack initiative, solving problems. Ah, Someone else can. Maybe my wife can. Someone else should. Lack of creativity. Boy, I don't know. That last good idea I had somebody shot down, maybe I don't know if I should. And lack of courage. Like, oh, it's a good idea, but you know, someone may not like it, and then I may not. And lack of drive. Oh, man, how long can I just live in my house forever and ever and ever and ever not really grow into manhood? You know, what does that mean? Lack of passion. All this kind of culminates in a lack of passion. A lack of desire to create something in the world, passivity kind of creates us within men that moves us in that direction. Right, that's just part of reality. Now, some men react to manhood that way, and they're like, man, that's too big. That's for somebody else. And for whatever reason, roll into passivity. Well, go back to balancing out the, the uh, scale here. If you add uh, on the other side, other men respond with aggression. All right? Now, this is perceived to be more uh, biblical, almost more you know uh, manly because man, you are strong. You're, you're aggressive. And again, if you take steps into aggression, the scale tips that way for you. An aggressive response can be like, yeah, I'm supposed to be a man. I'm going to man up, and here's what I'm going to do as a man, and here's what it looks like. And, and aggression is evidenced by these things and, and others. This is just a, a sampling. Anger and short-temperedness, impatience. Uh, an inability to build teams, because people don't really like to work with you very much because it's hard to get along. An inability to handle disappointment, not able to process difficulty, conflict, struggle because, ah, oh, I don't know how to do it. Lack of self-control, an inability to really uh, manage your passions and your, your desires. And evidenced by abuse, you know, mental, physical, emotional abuse. And we kind of heap on other people. And that historically, men have reacted in one of two ways passivity or aggression, to what it means to become a man. Now, if I take this thing back and I balance this out, the question becomes, how should a man respond and what does a balanced view of masculinity look like? Well, if you have passivity on the one side and you have aggression on the other, the obvious answer is that men should be... <laughs> passive-aggressive, right? Now, okay, just burn that from your thought now, okay? <laughs> I just I had to do that. Transition existed, needed an excuse to put that in there. But here's the thing. Balance is, as Howard Hendricks used to say, that place we find ourselves when we swing from one extreme to the other. In other words, it doesn't exist as a permanent state of being. We're often swinging from one to the other. So ultimately, I put on here the pursuit of manhood. Okay? The pursuit of manhood is this attempt to kind of keep this scale kind of balanced to continue to resist this passivity and this drawdown, to lack of passion, lack of drive, lack of commitment, lack of initiative, all that stuff that, that really we, we look at and we're like, ah, I don't want that. But honestly, other people can see it in us quicker than we can. And it's a push against aggression, this overly testosterone-laden, angry man who can't control his passions but seems to get things done that nobody likes to work with and who really is just very, very fearful even of himself. So what does it look like to kind of balance this thing out? Women, here's why I want to talk to you for a minute. This will be easy. If you're married to one of these people we call men, this will be easy for you this morning to find something to critique, if not crucify, in your husband. I'm putting the ball low on the tee this morning, and you... Get the choice of what you can do with it. You can bash that baby out of the park. You can kill your husband for something that you're already disappointed in him about. I will tell you, you will find that this morning. You will find the failure you already feel in your husband. You will, I will put words to that. You will feel justified if you want to, to continue to criticize and critique and hammer your husband. If you want that, you will find that this morning. And I will tell you this. Your words carry more weight than anybody else. In this world, your words are heavier than anybody else. When you come to your husband and you tell him, you respect him, you honor him, you care for him, you love him, you're proud of him. That means more to him than anybody else in the world. And so when you come to him with a critique and with a criticism, that also turns him inside out. Now he may play that off, I'm just telling you. Your words away a lot. Young ladies, this morning, I hope as we get into a picture of manhood, and you're not married, maybe you're thinking about dating, that you get a picture oh, this is what a man should look like. Know this we are all sinners. And so we're just going to float back and forth between struggle and failure and boyish behavior. And good stuff, and really bad stuff, and then some good stuff. We're never going to nail this thing perfectly, but this is part of the deal this morning of where we're at, okay? So I want you to know those things, women in particular. You have an opportunity to care for, to serve, to encourage your husband. Instead of nailing him, to come back and say, how can I help? Let me tell you what won't go well. Hey, what did you think of Tim's message this morning, huh? Any, Any thoughts on that? You know, the whole family thing you know would you think about that think you can do anything different i mean that just is men don't generally take advice from other men anyway and i get that all right so that is not going to be be helpful another way to say it is man what did you think was terrible about the message this morning all right and then that gives him the opportunity to say this is what i thought was bad all right then he can kind of make up his own future and it's his idea and that works that's fine by me all right it really is fine by me whatever works to kind of help come around conversations, say, let's keep rolling together, and how can I, as a wife, be supportive, all right? So let me lay out a little bit of a picture in a couple different ways about men and their strength and what this looks like, all right? If you have a Bible, um, you're welcome to track along with me if you want to do that. I'm going to throw a bunch of things up here on the screen as well, so you can do one or the other. By the way, if you want to track in a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew uh, near you. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you this morning as well, all right? All um, right, so I want to give a picture, and I want to talk about a man and his roles in a couple different ways and just flesh out what does it look like, if you're a man, uh, to, to carry this out. And let me start with a man and his family, all right? Let me start there, and let me go to a passage that I love to go to because I think it's so succinct and so clear, and that is Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verses 25 to 29. So we're talking now, what does it look like for a man to roll out, use his strength to serve others? by ordering the world around them for their benefit in the home. First of all, Paul is writing to people in the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 29. He says this, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. All right, first verse. Let me just pause it on that. I'm not going to be long on all this because I have several verses to go through, but listen, husbands, love your wives. He's going to give two ways that husbands were to love our wives. Number one is Christ loved... The church and gave himself up for her, which is really a matter of full sacrifice, just full-on, I'm willing to die for you. I'm willing to die for you. I'm willing to give it all for you, and that's just kind of what I do, and that's my default. I'm willing to give it all to you. Now, why? And here we go in verse 26. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That is confusing, If you just came across that this morning, and this is the first time you heard that for a while, that's confusing. But really what it is, it's an allusion to the Old Testament. It's an allusion to the Old Testament sacrificial system. The point is, in a way, Paul is saying, men, husbands, you are functioning, in a way, as a priest in your home. He's speaking to Jewish men. He's like, Jewish men, you understand this. The things in here, the sprinkling and all that, the cleansing, the washing with water, I mean, all that, you know that because what comes to mind if you're a Jewish man, that's priest stuff. That's what priests did to get the sacrifices ready and to get worship ready. That's priestly stuff. And what Paul is saying is, men, you will function in the home like priests. Wow. In other words, you have, and I have as a man, a priestly responsibility to lead My wife, spiritually. Verse 28, before that gets too heavy. In the same way, he says, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. If you're in premarital counseling with us at any point, you'll hear me say this. The two ways that Paul talks about us as husbands to love our wives, one, love them to the death, and number two, love them in our life be willing to die for them, be willing to live for them. I don't know which is harder, honestly. This second verse here in verse 28, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. In other words, as soon as you come home from work and you're like, man, I'm tired, I'm hungry, will you, you know, whatever, you know, get, get dinner ready, can you do whatever, you know, what needs done in the house. My first thought when I come home, to take care of my own body, to look after myself, Paul is saying, that concern that you have for yourself, it should be pre um, Previewed by or led in by a concern for your wife, just as natural as it is for you to fill out. Man, I'm hungry. I'm going to eat. I'm tired. I'm going to go to bed. Whatever it is, and that's about all that we think about, right? I think anything else you think about as man. That's about it. Okay. Before we think about ourselves, think about your wife. So think about her while you're think about her in life, and think about her to the death. This is what Paul lays out, and then he goes on for for men who are not just husbands, but who are fathers. And he goes into the next chapter, in chapter 6 and verse verse 4, and he says this. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Did you see the first word in that verse? This isn't mothers. This isn't um, Sunday school teachers. It isn't youth leaders. It's dads. So if you get a title and your title is dad... You already know this, right? Like, you're the only one in the world who will ever have that title for your, parent, for your kids. I mean, you know that, right? Like, there's no one else in the world who can do that job but you, and that will never change. Your, your title at work may change. You can, if you even want to. Your title of husband could change. You could even get a different wife at some point. I'm not suggesting that. But that can change. But what can't change is dad, father, to your children. And so to those who are fathers, he says, fathers, here's what you're to do. Don't exasperate your kids. Don't make them upset. Don't kind of wear them out. Instead, bring them up. You, you bring them up. Here's your role. Priestly, father. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And so here's the deal. Man, if you're at home, what does it look like for me to, to work out my strength, to order the world around me at home and with our wives? Here's the challenge. What kind of questions am I asking to create an environment at home where my wife feels that I'm leading in spiritually at home? I, I don't have the, the luxury of coming home and making it be all about me. Let me not glamorize this for you for a minute, okay? It, it, it's easy to glamorize this in church because church can seem kind of neat and clean. Everybody dresses up and smells pretty good. When we come to church, some people even wash their cars. Yeah, I, I do that a couple, couple times a, a year. But we look good, all right, coming to church. We gotta hear a good message, and kind of, that's easy in church on Sunday morning. But let me not glamorize this for you. Let me just tell you from my perspective, this is difficult. This is difficult. I routinely feel inadequate in this. And, and when we step in and when we press in in our own family for spiritual growth, let me tell you that it is with fits and spurts that it goes. It is with struggle that it moves forward. I routinely feel uh, less awesome than more awesome about my ability to lead in this area. Let me not glamorize this for you. Let me not make you think all of a sudden like, the angels of heaven are shining down on our home, right? And that, that somehow like, nothing bad ever happens and that only uh, great spiritual moments and insights are being uh, experienced on a regular basis. That, that's just not reality, okay? But that's also not the requirement here. The requirement for the man is to say, don't ever give up on this don't ever become passive with this don't ever discharge this duty to somebody else there is no one else who should do this but you you don't have to do it alone we're gonna talk about the role of the woman next time you don't have to do it alone but the priestly functioning the leadership in the home men it's gonna just come to us not because we're smarter not because we're more insightful, not because we're nobler, not because we fall into sin less. It's just the role that we have as men here in the home. This is a picture of what this can look like. Now, some of you are like, man, that's awesome, but I'm not married. <clears throat> that sounds great. Now I'm not going to get married. You know, I don't know. Um, if you're a single man this morning, right? you're, you're a young adult or you're, you're older and you're single, let me encourage you this way. In 1 Corinthians 7.34, Paul writes it this way. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. His point is, if you are unmarried, be all unmarried. Okay, like Be all in wherever you are. If you are unmarried and you are pursuing the, the gift of singleness, then do that full on. Then, then give of yourself fully to the Lord's work because Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 that those who are married kind of get distracted with taking care of their wives. I mean, he just kind of puts it that way. It's not a bad thing. It's a thing that married men do. But if you're single, or, or if you're going to pursue singleness in your life and you think that's God's calling or leading on your life, then listen, be all in with that. Being single doesn't mean now I get to disengage. I don't have to be a spiritual leader. I don't have to connect. No, it means you have more opportunity to do that. If you're single, let me also say this. How do you treat women? I mean, how do you if you're dating and you're I'm single, I'm dating, and I'm kind of in that world. Let me let me say this. Stop playing the field. All right. You are not more godly because you can date 15 women before you figure out who you want to marry. Like this isn't about how can I figure out how many women I can be with before I finally settle down. Here's what Paul writes to young Timothy in 1 Timothy 5. Too. He says this about relating to women. He says, treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. And so if you're in the dating world, you want to know how do I treat a young lady? How do I treat a young lady? As a sister with absolute purity. With absolute purity. Got, kind of man up and do that. All right? In other words, she's not just someone that you could have or own or dominate or kind of get over. You know whatever. No, no, no. Treat younger women as sisters with absolute purity to honor and respect. And listen, man up and move toward a commitment, okay? Like move toward marriage, move toward something. Don't just kind of hang out and linger in the unknown of, I don't know if I'm going to date, I don't know, we've been dating for four and a half years, I don't know if I really like you anymore. Like, Like, come on, come on. Make a commitment, move towards something, use your strength to serve those around you by ordering the world for their benefit. If you're single, that's where you're at. Here we go, all right? Develop, pursue godliness in that sense, all right? So a man in a family, a man in his singleness. Now let me, talk, let me turn it this way and talk about a man in the, in the church, a man in his faith. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy again, and he says this, young Timothy, in 1 Timothy 3, uh, verse 1. He says, here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart, on being an overseer, he desires a, what? Noble task. Let me talk for a minute about men in the church, men in the faith, at, at church in particular. I want you to see the two words here. He says, he desires, number one, and then he says, a noble task. This word desire, it means um, to reach out for something that's not quite there. To aim for and to reach for something that you have yet to grasp. In other words, it's the desire that you have to do anything that you really want to do. Some of you have a desire to make more money. I get that. Some of you have a desire to start your own business. Some of you have a desire to adopt children. Some of you have a desire to serve overseas. Some of you have a desire, you know, to continue to grow in your company or in your business and, and grow even more. That desire, whatever it is that is out of reach for you right now that you're working toward that gets you going and moves you and motivates you to work and to function, Paul saying, if you take that and you desire to be an overseer or an elder, a leader within the faith community, you are desiring, and here's what he says, a noble task. You want to figure out what nobility looks like? What does it mean to be a man who pursues good things? Not just things for my benefit, but truly good things. In the church, can you imagine what it would look like the next time, let's say, we have elder nomination, and instead of sweating through the process, and I hope I don't, hope I don't, I I wonder who that poor person is going to be, what if it's like, you know what, what if I began to orient my life now toward eldership, toward leadership in the church? What if I were to look at the qualifications of elder and say, that is a spiritual life that I want. Whether I function as an elder or not, I don't care. But to aim for and to reach for something as a man within my church, to order the world for the benefit of the people around me, this is a noble task. This is what Paul says. This is noble. In other words, don't leave it just for the women. Now listen to me. There's nothing wrong with women filling the roles. And Let me be clear. We're going to talk next week about uh, no uh, diminishing of the value, the strength, the intellect, the capacity of women in any sense. All right, Let me be clear on that. But men, uniquely, what would it look like if as men we started stepping up to the plate within the church? where we started becoming dissatisfied with the status quo, where we started saying, you know what, I need to invest within my church. I need to figure out how we can do missions even better. I need to figure out how in the world does the good news of Jesus Christ come to those who are outside of faith in him. And how do we do that well as a church body? How do we pray well as a church? Man, I'm not satisfied with that. How can we do that better? How can we serve those in our community in very practical ways? And I'm not satisfied with how we're doing that. I want to do that even better. I want to reach for, I want to yearn for and aim for something that is not yet there. And I'm just telling you, this is Bible stuff now, that if you desire that, you're desiring a noble task. You're pursuing a good and right leading. This is what Paul lays out for us. The ultimate question behind all this the ultimate way to think about this is as a man, how am I, if I put it this way, how am I going to use my strength to serve those around me? How am I going to use my strength to serve those around me? I mean, you take work as well. How am I going to orient my work to serve those around me? Where my job is not just for me, but for the benefit of those around me. And so when you play this thing out, you play it out at home, being a spiritual leader. You play it out in the children and leading and serving them, not being able to discharge our duty as men. You play this out in the church and say, man, I need to be desiring pursuing a noble thing. You play this out in the dating world, in the singleness world, saying, I don't want to really mess around just seeing how many people I can date. I want to get after A godly marriage. That's what I want to get after. I want to pursue that in my life. You play this out at work. I want to be a a man who leads in my work to create benefit for those around me. That's what I want to do. Now, here's a question I would like to ask you. And men, if you're um, tracking with me at all and you're uh, you're a man, I think you'd appreciate this question because this, this question kind of gets to the heart of men in a hurry. And it's this question right here. What problems need solved? What problems need solved around you? Don't raise your hand, nod, or in any other way, kind of give yourself away. But have you ever been talking either to your wife or another woman about a problem that they have, and you immediately have a solution, but you know you can't share it yet? Okay? If you've ever been there, because you know she doesn't want a solution right now, I'm giving you that permission. This is freedom. This is freedom, men. Fix it. This is what we love to do. This is why you even go to work, right? There's a problem, I'm going to fix it. The system broke, I'm going to make it better. Car's not working, I'm going to fix it. You know, the machine's broken, I'm going to fix it. They need a better way to do that, I'm going to fix it. I mean, we're just going to solve problems. It's kind of, wow, I don't have to think about one thing at a time. Boom, here we go. All right, let me ask you this. What problems need solved around you? What problems need solved at home? Listen, you already know the answer, don't you? If you don't know, ask your wife. Don't well, Maybe don't do that right away. But There's problems that you already know are there. And you haven't maybe known what, to do about it. But I'm just encouraging you, listen, ask the question, what problem needs solved in my marriage? What problem needs solved with my children? Why is it that my children aren't or my kids are? You know, how can we do this better? What problem needs solved in my own desire even to, to serve at church? Like, Why do I fight against that? What is it when someone says, you know, desire a noble task, be an overseer? Why do I fight against that? Is that a problem? Or is that normal? Like, What, what needs to be addressed in me that I... Look at that, and I'm like, I would never do that. Like, I would leave the church and disown Christianity before I become an elder. I mean, like, what is it in me that just fights against that spiritual leadership? What, is, what, is the, what problem needs fixed? And then let me ask this. Why are these problems not solved yet? You know, what is it? And some of it might be, I need more information. Like, I don't know how to fix the problem of spiritual leadership in my home. Like, I don't know how to do that. I I don't have information. I want to, I have a desire to, but I don't know how. Can you give me some information and help? That legitimately might be an issue. Some of it might be a plan. Like, I, I, I have some ideas, but I don't have a plan. Some of it might be accountability. Listen, we are terrible at doing this alone. Terrible. doing this alone. We are not good as men at functioning in our own and making this work long term. We can do it for a little while, but we are terrible at being successful in this long term. It just is not going to work. And some of the problem might be accountability. Some of the problem might be the complexity of the situation. Like, boy, if you only knew my wife, if you only knew my kids, if you only knew what was going on at work, if you only knew why I don't at church, here's why. You know, this this happened for a long time. It might be very complex. I, I get that. I'm not I mean, that just might be reality. But you're a man, right? You can challenge that a little bit. Use your strength. Use your strength to not give up. And I want to leave you with this. Here's my hope. That if you remember nothing else from anything that I just said in the last 30 minutes, that what Ralph Winter wrote in 1985 in a little article about retirement will never leave your mind. I'm going to show you this in just a moment. Ralph Winter is a missiologist, and he wrote an article about retirement, but I think it applies here. He uses the word retirement to speak of coming to the end of whatever working years are and rolling into what we would traditionally understand to be retirement. But I think his principle applies to anyone, in particular men, who would rather give up than move forward. To men who come to a point of making a decision and being right on the cusps of doing something different and right on the cusps of courage and then just kick the can down the road and give up. Because too often I've seen failure and failure and failure and you ask me to come do it again? <laughs> and here's what Winter had to say. Men don't die of old age. They die of retirement. And when you retire your passions, and when you retire your courage, and when you retire your dreams of what can be, it's over. And you're going to live out the rest of your days wishing things were different, and being a victim. And then your wife who already sees a struggle in you, she might not even be helping you. She might still be criticizing you and then you might even be feeling worse about yourself. I get it. But listen, men don't die of old age. They die of giving up. Because what you've been wired to do to use your strength to serve people around you is God's image on you. And don't ever give that up. Don't ever stop pursuing it in the middle of all of the failures at home in the middle of all the failures in being a spiritual leader and the heavy burden that that is and the burden of failure that can be, don't ever give up the pursuit of being a father that your children can look to and say, he loved God and taught me to do the same thing. Don't ever retire on these issues. Don't ever retire about your pursuit of leading people around you spiritually in the church This is what you're wired to do, to solve problems, to create, to innovate. And men don't die of old age. They die of giving up. God has wired us as men to use the strength that we have to serve the people around us, to order the world for their benefit. And whatever you do, don't ever give up. We pray with me. Our good God and Heavenly Father, we come before you and need courage. We need strength. And we need to do what you're laying on our hearts to do. Father, there are things in our hearts as men that are deep. That are lifelong struggles we have wrestled with that have turned us inside out. That are the demons of our past, if you will. Father, as we in these times have the chance to come back and look at them. Man, help us not to kick it down the road for another day, for another time when maybe I'll deal with and maybe I'll get on top of and maybe I'll fix and maybe I'll talk and maybe I'll ride and maybe I'll lead and maybe I'll serve. And Give us the courage as we struggle together to step in where we know we need to step in. Father, for our women this morning, pray for the wives in this room who know their husbands are struggling and dealing with things that they wish were different. I pray that you give them courage, sensitivity, wisdom in how they use their words. That their conversation can be uplifting, encouraging, supporting, respectful, honoring where challenge might need to happen in a marriage, that that challenge would come out of a heart that truly believes the best about the husband. Where correction needs to come in the life of a man, and the wife sees that, may you give her the heart of love and service for, not a heart of contempt or anger toward her husband. It takes a lot to change that heart, and we pray that you would do that, that your spirit would change those hearts. For our single men, who are trying to figure out, where do I go? Do I pursue a life of singleness or marriage? I pray that you give them courage to step toward commitments, to to lead a life about commitment, pursuit, and love in the fullest of ways. And again, for our young ladies, for our young women who are still unmarried, dating, what have you, give them courage not to lower the bar. Not to just look for the nearest breathing male and latch on to him. But to pursue godliness. To pursue someone who serves with strength for the benefit of others. Give us courage to lead out and serve in the way that we need to. Lead us, we pray, our Father. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.